Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. Today, the science of nutrition. I'm your host, Chris Case. It's time to bust some myths about nutrition. Head coach Ryan Kohler, coach Trevor Connor, both have degrees in nutrition and both have decades of experience working with athletes on all manner of sports nutrition topics. And today, together, they'll discuss some of the major misconceptions that regularly enter any conversation on what to eat when training and racing. Are macronutrients all that matter? Do carbs make you fat? Do you need fancy race food, such as Swedish fish? Do you know if you have a food allergy? How do you know if you have that food allergy? What really causes cramping? Is a pasta party the best pre-race dinner? Can you train how your body hydrates? All these questions and many more today as we explore some of the most common misconceptions in sports nutrition. Let's make you fast. Fast Talk listeners, over the past few weeks, we've mentioned our new coaching, education, and community membership, Fast Talk Laboratories. And because it's the holidays, we'd like you to try it out for free. For the next week, you can join Fast Talk Laboratories on a free one-month trial. That means you can join our live workouts and webinars, check out Q&A sessions, get full access to our articles and how-to videos, and even take advantage of our Ask a Coach guidance. If you decide our membership isn't for you, just cancel within 30 days and you won't be charged. To get your one-month trial membership, visit FastTalkLabs.com, choose your member level, and check out with the discount code PODCAST. Hurry, our offer ends December 24th. Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance, and today also the science of nutrition, where we've got in the red corner, wearing the red t-shirt, Ryan, head coach Ryan Kohler, weighing in at, I don't know your weight or your height, but you're taller than me, <laughs> but you're probably not that much heavier than me. I don't know. We'll have to do a weigh-in someday. Weigh, weigh, in the blue corner, we've got Coach Trevor Connor, and you guys are going to fight about the myths of nutrition today, macronutrients, carbohydrates. Swedish fish, hydration, cramping, all these things in today's episode. You guys ready to fight? We are ready to go. Ryan had two slices of pizza before we clocked in here, so I know he's not. Ooh, <laughs> them's fighting words. What do you got what do you got to say? Well, Ryan. I got nutrition shamed as I was eating it, so I'm I'm ready here. <laughs> oh boy. Nutrition shamed. He didn't even get vegetables on it. He just got straight pizza. Cheese is a vegetable. Come on. Oh, there you go. Oh, it's tomato <laughs> sauce. <laughs> Pizza was actually yeah. declared a, a vegetable because it has tomato sauce on it. Well, now that you guys have your boxing gloves on, let's talk about the first topic here. And these, again, are myths. So I'm going to state each of these as a myth, and then you guys can pick apart why it's a myth from your different perspectives. If it's a myth. If it's a myth. There you go. Macronutrients are all that matter. Who wants to start? I've got to start this one because you are touching on one of my giant soapboxes. It is not about macronutrients. Macronutrients say nothing about the health of the food. Uh, when you say, should you know, is a, a high carbohydrate diet healthy or unhealthy? Is a low carbohydrate diet healthy or unhealthy? Well, what are the sources of those carbohydrates? 
vegetables are carbohydrate sources. So you can eat a, and so is fruit. So you can eat a high carbohydrate diet that's based on fruits and vegetables, which very few people are going to argue is not a healthy diet. You can also eat a high carbohydrate diet eating a whole lot of Skittles. So I think when we focus on macronutrient ratios, we start to forget about the foods that we are eating. And that often leads people to start eating unhealthy foods but or unhealthy diets, but they think they're healthy because they're getting the ratio they want to get. And the fact that I've seen on my Facebook feed all these ads for macronutrient diets and meal plans based around macronutrients, that's always my first red flag to uh, <laughs> throw it in the garbage. If Facebook <laughs> says it, then stay away from it, right? I actually wrote an article about this because I overheard a guy who was pretty religious about the keto diet talking about his approach to diet. And he started by going on a rant about fruit and how you should never eat fruit because that's got carbohydrates. That's bad for you. Don't eat that. And then subsequently went on a rant saying that you should be eating a stick of butter a day. And that, to me, was the ultimate result of somebody just focusing on a diet based on macronutrients. Nobody, nobody who's well-trained in nutritional research is going to tell you, avoid fruits like the plague, but eat a stick of butter a day. What if, you're, what if your chosen fruit, what if you only ate one fruit? I don't think that's particularly healthy, too. I don't think you should eat any one particular food. I think you need diversity. So actually, I'm jumping into my other world, so everybody knows I also work with the paleo diet. Since we're talking about nutrition today, that's probably going to come up a few times. Did a recent interview with a, a gentleman, Dr. London, who is researching the last remaining true hunter-gatherer society in the world. And he analyzed their diet, and they have a, they eat a lot of fruit, and they have about 90 different varieties that they eat. And they don't eat all 90 at the same time. They tend to eat them when they're seasonal, so they're constantly changing what they're eating. You work with the paleo diet, and you mentioned that there isn't this huge emphasis of macronutrients in the paleo diet. So what is the emphasis? So I did an interview a few years ago with a Dr. Caroline Apovian, who is the Director of Nutrition and Weight Management Center at the Boston Medical Center. Uh, she also helped create the 2013 Dietary Guidelines. The reason I was interviewing her was I, I had heard she'd been quite critical of the paleo diet, and I wanted to hear what issues she had. So we're doing this interview. I'm asking her about different aspects, and she's saying, well, I like this about it. I like that about it. And, and overall, she seemed fairly supportive. So I finally just had to ask her, what is your criticism here? And she just immediately goes, you have no macronutrient ratios, which kind of caught me off guard. So I asked her more about that, and she basically said, when they were creating the guidelines, they needed a way to compare diets to determine which was a better diet, which was a worse diet. And what they landed on is they needed macronutrient ratios for diets or you couldn't compare them. You couldn't do scientific studies comparing them, which I get you need a, a point of comparison. But to then, in my opinion, well, I have a ton of respect for Dr. Apovian to say that you now need to judge diets based on a macronutrient ratio, I think you're getting away from something that's really important. 
Well, you touched upon something in there about carbohydrates, maybe eating excessive amounts or, or focusing on the, a, a ratio there with a high carbohydrate diet. Let's, that, that sort of leads us to the next myth here that carbs make you fat. Is that true, Ryan? Is there any truth to that? It's poor diet choices and, and too much energy, not enough output. That's, that's what makes you fat. This has been investigated a number of times, and many times it's when you compare the differences in, in that. I look at it more as it's not a specific nutrient that's going to make you fat. If you, if you eat too much of anything, yeah, you'll, you can gain weight. I feel like there's this, the, the myth is that if you eat a bunch of pasta or eat a bunch of bread and you exercise, then you've used the carbohydrates you've put in your body so you won't gain weight. But if you eat a bunch of pasta, eat a bunch of bread or something similar with quote unquote high carbohydrates in it, but you don't use them, then those carbohydrates get converted into fat and that's when you put on weight. That totally... Let, let's disprove that right now, Trevor. Talk th about the mechanism there. Well, first of all, the, the comment, carbs get converted to fat, right? not quite accurate. There is some conversion back and forth. You, you can have some conversion of, of fat to carbohydrates. And I'm not going to go into the whole mechanism there. More of what you see happen is what's called uh, oxidative priority, that your body prioritizes certain macronutrients over others for fuel. And it will always prioritize carbohydrates first, then fat, then protein. So if you eat a mixed meal and it has a lot of carbohydrates, your body's going to burn those carbohydrates. And if there's fat in the meal, it's going to say, well, I'm, I'm content with the carbohydrates right now, so I'm going to store the fat. So in essence, the carbohydrates are converted to fat, but more it's just because you're using the carbohydrates for fuel, the fat gets stored. So that, that's the first one. You hear people all the time using this, well, it gets converted to fat or this gets converted to carbohydrates. Our body's ability to interconvert is there's some ability. It's not very good. Mm -hmm. And most of it is about converting to carbohydrates, which we're going to address more in the next myth. The other side of this, we're going to argue a little bit with Ryan, I think. So first of all, I agree. And we have an episode coming up where we're going to talk about is weight loss and weight gain all about calories in, calories out. So I'm going to give you a preview and give you my bias. Yes, you can't break the laws of thermodynamics. What is a calorie? Calorie is a, a measure of energy. We can't really excrete energy, calories. So we either have to store them or use them. So if you consume more calories than you burn, you have to store those calories. So that's the short explanation of why it's kind of calories in, calories out. So yeah, you can get those calories from almost, from any macronutrient. And if you overconsume calories, it's, it's going to make you fatter. However, an important thing to consider is, and I won't go too much into the technical jargon, fat and protein tend to be satiating. It's hard to eat a lot of them on their own. Well, actually, carbohydrates tend to spark hunger signals. So it's one of these vicious cycles where the, uh, the more carbohydrates you consume, the hungrier you, you can get. And you can consume 1,000 calories without batting an eyelash. Particularly, and I know some diets have talked about this, 
when you combine carbohydrates with fat, because if you look in nature, they don't really exist together. You have carbohydrates in, in fruits and vegetables, which tend not to have a lot of fat and, pro, and protein. Um, you tend to get your, your fat and protein from animal sources. So you're eating fat and protein together, or you're eating carbohydrates. So when you take something that's very high in calories like fat, combine it with carbohydrates, and carbohydrates spark uh, hunger signals, and look at the junk food aisle. Everything in the junk food aisle is a combination of carbohydrates and fat. You can put down an extraordinary amount of, of, of calories and still be hungry at the end of it. So Ryan, I don't know that you are fully on board with the calories in, calories out uh, philosophy here, but if you are... How does somebody go about determining the the appropriate amount for them so that they don't pack on excess amounts of carbohydrates or any other macronutrient and, and gain weight? How, how does one determine what they need? That's a great question. And uh, I think we just talked about this recently in our uh, nutrition apps webinar for members where we looked at methods of figuring out what, you know, at least what you're taking in. That's certainly one way to do it is if you want to actually go and log, you can figure out how much my, how, how much is coming in. And there's other methods to, uh, you know, you can go into a, a lab and, and test in there and figure out a, a pretty close expenditure. But one thing that I've always found working with athletes in the past is just an easy way of how have you, are you weight stable and, and have you been weight stable, you know? And then we talk about those habits and the types of foods that typically come in almost like a, like a very impromptu food frequency sort of questionnaire. We relate that back to just their, their weight status and those trends over the last, you know, three, six, 12 months. It seems like if people are generally weight stable, then they found a good balance. It doesn't really speak to the quality, but it at least gives us a starting point to figure out, yeah, are you eating enough or are there some deficits there? You know, and with athletes in particular, we can dig a little bit deeper and talk about their, their recovery habits, how they feel, you know, as far as preparedness for their training sessions. We can start to get some insights to know, okay, are there any little red flags that get thrown up that make us think maybe we're not getting enough? Yeah, there's so much more in that presentation you gave on the webinar. So for, for members, they can check that out online. Are we ready to move on to the next myth? I would say this one goes sort of in the opposite direction in terms of carbohydrates. The, the myth being carbs aren't essential, so you don't need them. If we talk about the essential piece of it, it's been long known that, you know, the brain is a, a large consumer of carbohydrate, you know, and, and, uh, I mean, when I think about this essential need, there's just two things that come to mind and it's really just that the brain functions well on glucose. It can also function at other substances as, um, an athlete, you know, one of those things that just helps us to feel functional and good throughout the day. And especially when we're exercising is just maintenance of blood sugar. Is it essential? I mean, no, we could argue that there are certainly ways we can we can fuel with with other sources um but i know trevor's gonna have a lot more to say on that one i think so trevor if i decided i was never going to eat another vegetable or fruit or grain or any other source of carbohydrates would i die because essential can mean several things, but if you're really talking about something being essential, it's necessary for life. So actually, there is a proper scientific definition of essential when we're talking about uh, nutrition. And the short, short, short answer is carbohydrates are not essential. 
but it is a longer answer because most people misinterpret what essential means. Can your body survive without carbohydrates? No, your body needs them. But that is not the definition of essential. Essential has two criteria. One is that your body needs it. And the second one, which a lot of people forget about, is can your body produce it itself? Your body might need it, but if your body can produce it itself, then it's not essential. So this gets for back to that conversion. Right. So for example, technically vitamin D is not essential because your body can produce it by sunlight on your skin. So you don't have to consume it. Carbohydrates are the same thing. Your body needs them. And so we're going to have some of the, the keto people out there go, but wait a minute, you can survive on a keto diet and your body can survive on keto, your brain can survive on ketones. Sort of. This goes back to what I was talking about, about the inner conversion. Your body doesn't do a ton of converting other nutrients to fat or converting other nutrients to protein. What your liver can really upregulate is conversion of other food stuff to carbohydrates. That's not the correct scientific term. I'm <laughs> blanking on the term that I was looking for. So it's called gluconeogenesis. The liver can take ketones and actually very easily convert them to glucose. So when you are in a ketogenic state and you talk about your brain surviving on ketones, yes, it's using a lot of the ketones for fuel, but it's also converting a lot of those ketones to glucose to still give your brain some glucose. So you aren't surviving entirely without glucose. You're just producing it yourself. Since your body has that ability to produce it, it is not essential. Stupid question, perhaps, but maybe because people out there aren't so familiar with all of these terms, carbohydrates and glucose, you're sort of using them almost interchangeably there. Yeah, carbohydrates, there's a whole bunch of different forms of carbohydrates, but it basically breaks down to one of three things, glucose, fructose, or galactose. Galactose? Yes. That's kind of cool, space. doesn't it? <laughs> So it's one of those three. Glucose and galactose use fairly similar pathways. Fructose is actually tr uh, transported through the lymphatic system to the liver. It's not transported through the, uh, through the blood. And then it is entirely processed in the liver. Another really important thing is the pathway. So glycolysis, the, the breakdown of sugar for fuel, is a fairly short process. I think it's six steps. Glucose starts at the very top and goes through all the steps. The rate-limiting enzyme in the whole glycolysis process is something called fructose fructose kinase, PFK. You could, you could really mess that up and turn that into a dirty word fast. And this is where Chris's mind goes to today. <laughs> <laughs> fructose fructose kinase is the rate-limiting enzyme that makes sure you're not processing too much glucose or ramps up the whole process when you need to break down that glucose. Fructose enters right below PFK, which means when you consume fructose, your body processes it. It has no ability to slow down or speed up that processing. This is one of the reasons high fructose corn syrup and table sugar, which are basically the same ratios, are quite bad for us because you're consuming more fructose than your body can use and your liver goes, well, I got to do something with it. I got to process it. And just to quickly finish that point, most of the conversion is other food stuff to carbohydrates, but there is some ability to convert back and forth. And this is one of the, or the other way. And this is one of the places you see it. When your liver is faced with too much fructose and has to process it, 
it tends to convert it to either lactate or to fat. And this is why you are starting to see fatty liver disease in children because of the amount of sugar that they are consuming. That's a disease that up until only a few decades ago, you only saw in middle age or older people who had alcohol problems. So here's our next myth, and that is food sensitivity testing is accurate or food sensitivity testing should be heavily re- relied upon. That's the myth. Is that correct, Ryan? There's there's a lot of nuance here. There's some context that you need to take into consideration when you're getting the results back from these these different tests. Right. There's multiple ways to go about this. One of the most common ones we see out there now is using this this marker IgG or immunoglobulin G. The places that offer this testing, what they'll do is, is take a blood sample, look for this marker, and then use that information to say, okay, this is elevated, so here's a list of foods that we're going to recommend you take out of your diet. And the problem with it is it becomes extremely restrictive. And uh, the reports, you know, from one simple test are pages and pages long. So it really just gets into, I think, these very negative habits that make it hard for people to make really small lasting changes, and it just pushes them all the way to the extreme side. There's allergy testing, and there's legitimate tests for allergies, and and IgE is another marker, and that's more commonly used with, with allergy testing for foods, but it's also in a bigger picture too. You, there's a there's a health history. There's a physical exam. There's different food challenges. So it's a bit more of a process. So when I see and I see a lot of this on again, I guess on Facebook. That's the mm, this, don't go that to news Facebook feed. Ever again. I see it always comes up there. You see this testing where it's like, hey, do this quick blood sample, and you get a report of the foods you're sensitive to. But in reality, what the IgG is showing is that potentially you may actually have a tolerance to this food because when you're exposed to it, it shows that there's this immune response. And that's the other side of the argument is that it could show actually that there is a tolerance or that, yes, you are responsive to this. Is it bad? Not necessarily. Basically, my statement is I have not studied food sensitivity tests, so I'm hesitant to give any sort of opinion. This is something Ryan's looked a lot into. The only things I can share is I I have studied immunology a lot, and I can share just some thinking out loud from what I know of immunology. So first talking about what immunoglobulin is. These IgEs are something that are released by your B cells, which is part of your, not your innate, but your adaptive immune system. They identify markers. So they are designed, they evolve to identify toxins, viruses, bacteria, and they're highly specific. So one particular IgG molecule is designed to identify one particular virus or one particular thing. And so you have all these different Ig uh, immunoglobulin molecules that just float around your body until they find what they are looking for, and then they bind to it. They're like little police officers. Right. So the way I actually always think of it like the spy movie where you put the little thing underneath the car and Mm. you're following the car and you lose it. Everybody's like, oh, no, we lost. And you're like, don't worry. I've got the marker. The LOJAC system. So this this is the same thing. This is your body marking it. I'm not going to go too far into the weeds, but IgG in particular works with a innate part of our immune system, which is called the complement system, which basically goes, hey, IgG is binding to that. We're going to come over and 
break down and destroy that virus or whatever it's, it's identified. IgG is the most common immunoglobulin in the body. So why am I telling you all this? The immune system, this, this belief that it only identifies invaders is really not true. It's one of the things that they've been discovering is that actually we, we are able to identify self, we're able to identify a lot of things, but it actually takes a lot to, to activate an immune response. Also remember that the immune system is designed to identify anything foreign. All food is foreign. So your immune system is always going to have a response, some sort of response to food. But first, you need what's called an adjuvant and a second signal to activate the, the immune system. You also have a part of the immune system that, that's really regulated by what are called T-regulatory cells, which can also identify self, can identify a lot of things and go, yeah, we know we've identified this, the immune system's seen this, don't worry about it. Don't mount a response. It actually takes a lot of something for the body, for the T-regs to go, oh, yeah, actually, this is bad. Now let's do something. So the concern here is, and I, this is where I'm thinking out loud, if you have a test that's going, do you see any sort of an IgG response to this? Well, all food is foreign. Your body responds to everything foreign. You're probably going to respond to most things. It's almost like a false positive in a way right. in that it's, it's doing what it's supposed to do. It's marking for stuff that you would almost anticipate getting a response for. But the more important question is, is this something that your body sees as bad enough right. to flip that response and say, we're going to go from energy to an actual response? And my guess is you'd have to see a pretty strong response to a food before the body would, would for the immune system would get it. So it's called the energic state when it basically says, yeah, we see that, we don't worry. So I, I think with most of these foods, your body would just stay in that energic state. Okay, so it sounds like these IgGs are immunoglobulins of different kinds are very specific. So I don't, I'm a little uh, uh, puzzled by why you would get back six pages worth of foods that the IgG showed a reaction to, so to speak. So what's the explanation there? I'm first going to apologize. Any immunologist out there listening to this, I know I'm dramatically oversimplifying. It's almost impossible to explain immunology in five minutes in, in simple sure, terms. Sure. So I also know I got some of those things because of the simplification wrong. But IgG is a particular type of immunoglobulin, but inside your body, you're going to have millions of different variations on IgG. And each one is designed to seek out one particular marker. Gotcha. Won't go too deep down this road, but this is actually the proof of evolution because it's really cool. When your body discovers a new virus, it brings it to the immune system, and then the immune system has this process, and I've studied this more in T cells than I've studied in immunoglobulin, but has this process where it keeps reproducing, but reproducing with an intended mutation. So each new reproduction is slightly different. And it takes that new one and goes, it's, it's like a lock and a key. It's literally since it's a protein, it's the shape of the protein that binds to the particular marker on the virus. So a new one's born, it goes over and goes, okay, how, how well do you bind to this virus? Not very well. Okay, reproduce with a mutation. Now we're going to take you and try to bind you to the virus. Oh, that was a little bit better. Okay, mutate again. And it keeps 
doing that until it finally gets one that goes, bam, this can identify this virus, then starts replicating it exactly the same, like crazy, sends it out in the body to take care of all this virus. Once you're done with, once you've killed the virus, once it's out of your body, then all, all most of the immune, that particular immunoglobin, most of those particular T cells die out and your body just keeps a small number of them in case that virus ever comes back again. Mm. But it doesn't, that's why the second time you have a virus, you can deal with it so much quicker because you already have those T cells and immunoglobin that can respond to it. So as soon as it responds, it goes, okay, reproduce really quickly. It doesn't have to go through that whole process of constantly mutating until it finds one that can identify mm -hmm. it. So I mean, the last thing to, to say is every time you eat, there is an immune response. You actually have some inflammation. This is part of the reason having some periods of time when you are in a fasted state is so important because your body has to deal with that inflammation after, after you eat. For those of you who are maybe a little lost in immunology speak, let's turn our attention to something a little simpler, and that is Swedish fish. Swedish fish are all you need for your rides. Now, before you answer, I will sort of give Trevor the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to explain what he meant by that, and that is you don't need fancy race food or shall I say, as a myth, you do need fancy race food. Is that a myth? When I get asked what should I eat for this race or what should I take on the ride, Swedish fish are usually in that list, but I'm usually just calling out random pieces of candy and asking people, like, what candy do you like? Take that. Jelly beans, gummy bears, gummy worms. We had that episode. The whole history of that episode is we were on, like, the ninth recording in three days. It was spontaneous. I didn't even know we were recording that episode. I was in a lousy mood. We just had all these sports nutrition products on the table, and I was asked, what do you think of these? And I just went, it's all crap. Swedish fish are just as good. <laughs> that, that has been with me ever since. And you know, like I said, sometimes I just kind of cry about that. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. I feel like we've, pretty happy about it. we've had discussions where you've embraced that, I feel like we've had other discussions where you've tried to distance yourself from that remark, but there is there is a little bit more nuance here than just, yeah, go out, eat Skittles on every ride because there, there has to be a balance. And um, the point is, I think here, the myth is fancy race food is better by and large than your average Skittle or gummy bear or whatever, which is just a bunch of marketing that they've done to make their product look better. But that being said, I don't think either of you as nutritionists uh, or people with um, uh, a better understanding of what your body needs that you're just saying, go out and eat candy all day long because you're an athlete, right? I'm not saying Swedish fish is healthy. Right. All right. I'll echo that. <laughs> yeah. So what, what we are saying, I think the better way of expressing this, what we also said in that episode, is a lot of your fancy race and ride food is just candy with better marketing. And that I will definitely stand behind. So if you're going to go that route of I just want the simple sugars, you're paying a lot of money to get, not get a lot of additional gains. Now, there there are some. This is some of the nuances. We've talked before. We had this that episode with Dr. Eukendrup about how much uh, carbohydrate can you absorb in an hour. 
and there's a particular ratio of glucose to fructose that maximizes your absorption. Most candy doesn't have that ratio. Most candy is too high in fructose, too low in glucose. A lot of candy uses other forms of, of sugar that you just don't absorb as well. So, yeah, the fancy race food is probably going to have a, a slightly better mix of glucose to fructose. That said, I've seen some that just use what they call natural sources. So they actually kind of hurt themselves because they don't use a, a good mix of glucose to fructose. Ryan, expand on this. What What is your advice to people? You know, you, I think, half-jokingly said, what's your favorite candy and go with that. But mm -hmm. talk a little bit more about the the planning that goes into choosing what you consume during a race. What are your likes and dislikes? If I have somebody going out doing Leadville, we use Leadville, a big sure. bike ride, and they're going to be 9, 10, 11 hours out there on the bike, there's absolutely no way that they would be able to eat Swedish fish the whole time, nor would I recommend that. Just, that would be, just Swedish fish. Yeah, or sticking to just candy. But let's figure out what other things do you like. So typically I'll have people do like a plan A of like, this is what I love, this is my perfect plan, and then we'll do a plan B of, okay, here's a backup, you know, what's available at the aid stations, and also what other foods, if you don't have access to plan A, what other foods do we know you can tolerate? So then it's a matter of figuring out what they can tolerate and, and continue to eat. And at a certain point, it's it's more about let's just keep the energy coming in. And if you're going to the Columbine climb and you're just at the base of it, sure, pop some candy. You're not going to sit there and eat a sandwich as you're climbing. So then we, we sort of periodize the nutrition in, in relation to the course. Um, you know, and then at, at the, on the way down, if you get up to the top and you have this long descent, you can slam some food in your mouth, maybe a sandwich, some fruit, something like that at the aid station. And you can actually chew that pretty easily while descending. Now that allows you to get in some, some fat, some protein, some other, some different textures, different flavors that now give you enough variety that when you go back to the, to the, the sweet sugary stuff, you're like, Oh, this is, this is good. I can still handle it. So we're really trying to not hit that sort of taste fatigue wall. Palette fatigue yeah, yeah. That, that is real yep and that can ruin a race yes uh, especially long ones because it almost is inevitable at some point at, mm -hmm. at hour 10 plus whether mm -hmm. it's uh yeah off-road on-road whatever right. you'll hit a place where you'll say i just want and then fill in the blank with a, a real quote-unquote real meal but mm -hmm. it's nowhere to be found right. so you've got to I, I like the idea of interspersing the the sweet stuff with the other stuff so that it's not all in one consecutive block where you might quick more quickly get fatigued in terms of taste or palate mm -hmm. and then not have much recourse. Right. Yeah. Thinking about, yeah, where can you, where's the best place to consume that, you know, and it's typically the, the sweet sugary foods like candies, they're easy to get in. It's a quick hit of energy. So yeah, figuring out where on the course or throughout the day is a good time to take that versus where's another place where you can then get in more calories and different types of food. So just trying to adjust the timing based on even just the logistics of getting the food in. One thing I don't, I don't want to, uh, uh, harp on the Swedish fish here to Trevor. But I do know that your preference, I think this is a, a strong preference, is that you you uh, procure your Swedish fish, Swedish fish, that's a tough one, 
from Canada because they use different ingredients up there, a better mix of ingredients. Is that correct? The primary sugar used up in Canada and a lot of candies is glucose. Mm. Uh, and they have they, a lot of the Canadian candies have uh, uh, a more appropriate uh, balance of glucose and fructose. So you're saying your candy is superior in the Great White North? Uh, for performance, yes. <laughs> Fructose is sweeter. A lot of food companies are really just designing things for craving. And so if you really want to get people addicted and get as much sweetness as possible, you you want to use more fructose. That sounds like something an American company would do, but the Canadians are too, too nice for that. We have the sweetest fish and you have the Swedish fish. See what I did there? Thanks. That's that's the best joke you got today? <laughs> oh, all my really, really good jokes, the hatchet, our producer, <laughs> cut out of the show. That was the only one she let slip by. Jerk. Okay. For our next myth, we're going to dive into something we actually referred to or, or covered quite a bit in an episode long ago, episode 26. But it's worth mentioning again because it's such an interesting myth. It has legs to this day. People still believe in it. Electrolyte deficiency causes cramping. Boom. Put the myth stamp right on that. Let's bust it. Who wants to take it? We did an episode very early on in, in, uh, in Fast Talk's history on this exact topic. Uh, and I would actually recommend checking it out because we interviewed Dr. Schwellness. Mm, like that name. So it's S-C-H-W-E-L-L-N-U-S, who is Schellness. really the preeminent researcher on cramping in the world. And he developed an alternative theory called the Altered Neuromuscular Control Theory. He did several studies, and there's more than just what he did, where they really weren't find a cor- finding a correlation between electrolytes and cramping. And keep in mind, he talks about this in the episode, it's really hard to study cramps. If you want to study doing threshold intervals, you bring everybody into your studio and say, do threshold intervals or into your, your research lab. You can't bring a bunch of people into the research lab and say, okay, have a cramp. So it tends to be at the end of events where they know a lot of people are going to cramp they then immediately get those people after the event and try to figure out a, a bit of what's going on. It and they did some of that. As, um, I'm trying to remember now because this was actually several years ago. We did this episode, but they really weren't finding the athletes who had who had cramped had any sort of electrolyte deficiency compared to anybody else. So the short version of the altered neuromuscular control theory is: in all of our muscles, we have muscle spindles, and Golgi tendons. So muscle spindles are responsible for causing muscles to contract. And they're, they're autonomic, uh, so it's a local contraction. If you want to know what I mean, think about going to the doctor. Doctor pulls out that little hammer and, and hits you right below the kneecap. Well, the doctor's hitting a big cluster of muscle spindles. And that causes a contraction. You have no control over it. So Golgi tendons cause a muscle to relax. When they're activated, the muscle just kind of goes, oh, time to relax. And one of the beliefs about massage is when you massage, you are activating or stimulating the Golgi tendons, and that gets the muscle to loosen up. So 
In a cramp, basically what happens is the excitatory drive from the muscle spindles, uh, I'm actually quoting right out of Dr. Schwellness's study here, gets overstimulated, gets overactive. And you see a drop in the inhibitory drive of Golgi tendons. So basically you have this big contraction signal, a uh, lessening of the relaxation signal. Normally those two are in balance. And as a result, the muscle cramps or uh, it contracts and stays contract. And that's your cramp. What, if anything, can you uh, add to this, uh, Ryan, in terms of people that are more prone to cramping? Why would that be? Yeah, there's, I think we've seen this in some of the data that there are people that are prone to it. And it, it's, it seems like the more elite you are, the faster you are, the more likely you are to uh, experience cramping. Um, I think, uh, was it, if you, if you've cramped before, you can, it's likely to happen again. You know, there are some, some factors that predispose you to potentially cramping again. And another factor is that males are more prone to cramping. Trevor, are you a cramper? No. I no? think I've had three cramps my whole life. Wow. To tell you the honest truth. That's so cool. I'm, I'm not one of those who's prone. Mm. One of the biggest causes of this altered neuromuscular control is muscle damage. So I, whenever I work with an athlete who is prone to cramping, I tend to find they haven't developed their endurance. They haven't developed their uh, fatigue ability or ability to re resist fatigue. And so when they go into a race that's really hard with lots of intensity, they just break down and that's when the cramping happens. So what we need to do is just basically build the the stamina of their body. And one of the best ways to do that is to get them in the weight room. Is this why there's this association between events that take place in super hot places or at hot times that there would be more cramping because of that. And it's actually, it's not because of dehydration. It's because there's more muscle damage when it, you're racing in the heat and therefore it could lead to this cramping so issue. So I did read a, a whole study about this and, and I can't remember all the details, but the short version of it is if you start to dehydrate, muscles are not going to function as well. When the muscle doesn't function as well, it's gonna you're going to start having muscle damage. You're going to start having some tearing, and that's what's causing the cramp. That's part of the reason people always went, well, it's electrolytes, because look, it happens in the heat. So how do you explain that? Well, when you're dehydrated, your whole body stops functioning as well. So it makes sense that your, your, your muscles are not going to function as well. And when your muscles don't function well, they get damaged. So the other time that you see cramping being quite common is early in the season. When you go, Often athletes will complain about cramping in their first couple of races because they're just not used to the intensity, and that, again, causes damage. So the one little bit of complexity to add to all this is there is another form. Of, we're talking about just a single muscle cramp, like your hamstring cramps or your calf cramps. There is a type of cramping that's all body, and there is some relation uh, of electrolytes to that. That sounds brutal. Balance. Yeah doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Also really important to remember that there are forms of cramping that are, that are symptoms of illness, of disease. So if you are experiencing a lot of cramping, it's good to just get it checked out and make sure. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review. 
The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Ryan Kohler and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.